Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by my friends Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And we wanted to dive right into a doctrinal discussion that is, I, I think, the deepest of, of all mysteries. Not that we're thinking that we're going to solve all the mystery here, but to, to speak about a couple of aspects of the theology of, of incarnation, of, of, of God taking on human flesh. This is surely the, the deepest of all mysteries. And because of that, oftentimes, as people have tried to grapple with God in the flesh and the person of Jesus Christ, it's not surprising that, that a lot of heresies have sprung from the misunderstandings here. If you go to the first several centuries of the church, the great ecumenical creeds, uh, we're all dealing with this doctrine from one degree or another. The nature of the Trinity, the nature of Christ's deity and his humanity. And this was such rich soil from which heresies could spring up. And it's interesting, I was having a conversation recently with someone and we were uh, kind of talking through some of these issues, and, and the subject came up. We, we were talking uh, about the second commandment, for instance, and my brother said, well, you know, it's, it's no problem looking at images of Jesus or having images of Jesus, because when you look at Jesus, you're not looking at God. You're looking at God in flesh. And, you know, in that immediate, I thought, okay, now that's, that's really, obviously, I disagreed with him, and, and there's some, some big issues with that. But, but I don't think that's very uncommon. And again, it springs from I think some common misunderstandings, understandable misunderstandings, uh, related to, to how we grapple with this tremendous mystery and miracle of the incarnation. Let, let me just throw this out, first of all. So let's, let's begin to tackle it this way. Uh, and I don't want to get into second commandment stuff. I, I want to focus more on on, on the incarnational issue here. Uh, when the disciples, when the apostles, uh, when the gathered crowds, when they looked at the incarnate Jesus, were they looking at God? Yes or no? Well, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Yeah, right. uh, God manifest in the flesh. Uh, yeah. I think we need to beware of making Jesus' human nature into a person. Mm -hmm. All of its own. I mean, the, right. the hypostasis, to use the technical language, the hypostasis of the human nature is, is the hypostasis of the second person of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. human nature in and of itself has no hypostasis. Colossians chapter 1, you yeah. know, in Christ, all yeah. the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Yeah. Hebrews yeah. 1, 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory yep. and the exact yep. representation of his being. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty clear. And so, and so, yes, you're looking at, they were looking at God in flesh, but, but the person of Jesus is God in the flesh, mm -hmm. but no yeah. less God. Uh, Nicene Creed, he's very God of very God. Yeah, and I think, and here's a tricky question, and this is one I was asking in an adult Sunday school class with, you know, really intelligent people, but they stumbled on it when I asked, because this is hard, you know, it's hard stuff if you're not thinking about it all the time. Yes. Is Jesus still fully God and fully man? Ah, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, next, and Next question. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> they were, you know, kind of stumped there, you know, right. a little bit, because, I mean, yeah, like you were saying in the introduction, 
it's so mysterious. It's so mm. wondrous, the incarnation. And yeah. so and I if think you're behind, not really, you know, spending the time right. thinking about those things, you have to go dig deep. And, mm. and, and I think behind that question you ask, because I'm asked that a lot, um, particularly when I'm teaching a Sunday school class on, mm-hmm. on some of these matters, is, is when I tease that question out with some folks, one of the things they're wondering is, is Jesus still possessed of a body? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, or, or is he spirit? You know, mm-hmm. is, is, he, is he still incarnate? Yeah. yeah. And, and Carl, the church has historically confessed that. Yes, he is. Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, I would recommend Doug Farrow's book, Ascension and Ecclesia. Doug Farrow is a, a Catholic theologian. I'm not sure he was Catholic when he wrote the book, actually. Mm-hmm. But that uh, looks at the, the issue of the ascension relative to, among other things, incarnational mm-hmm. aspects. And I think part of the, the issue there is a lot of Protestants, uh, imaginations are, I would say, rightly captured by the idea of the forgiveness of sins and the, and the mm-hmm. death of Christ. But the death of Christ and, and forgiveness of sins is is really the, the staging post in many ways to communion with God, our Father, through mm-hmm. Christ by the Holy Spirit. And Christ's human nature, book of Hebrew, this is the book of Hebrews, really. Right, right. Christ's human nature is critical to the work of salvation, which yeah, has to be fair. seen, I think, in much broader terms than just the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's also the relationship between the Father and the Son into which we are mysteriously drawn via the incarnation. So the incarnation, I think, remains uh, of critical importance. The Bible consistently from Genesis 1 presents this tremendously paradoxical view of God in some ways, that he is transcendent, mm-hmm. uh, and yet he's also there intimately involved with creation. He's not the, the Greek transcendent God. Right. Mm-hmm. He's a God who is transcendent, uh, who doesn't need a house to dwell in, right. and yet who meets in the Holy of Holies with Moses and there speaks to him as a man speaks to his friend. So uh, there is this fascinating aspect of the Old Testament God that he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. Mm -hmm. And the great culmination of that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I just pulled out my Bible looking at at Hebrews when the writer of the Hebrews in the very first chapter is laying out this glorious, in the very first few verses, this glorious idea of Christ as the Mm -hmm. final word of God, Mm -hmm. pointing to the incarnation. Uh, But he also says this, uh, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all, all things, through whom also he created the world, is the radiance of his father's glory, uh, the exact imprint of his nature, and present tense, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So yeah, not only is the second there. person opening incarnate, he's also transcendent at that point. Mm-hmm. Indeed, one might say his transcendence is what grounds his imminence in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, particularly of, of, of good Bible-believing evangelical people, have never really wrestled with that. Right. They have a view of God that's either modalist or tritheist, and mm-hmm. you know Jesus is like a, a glass into which divinity is poured. Mm. Right. The second person is nicely, neatly contained in that glass. Well, no, he isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He remains transcendent even as he's incarnate. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost what, what I find in conversations with folks oftentimes is an image of Jesus that they fully affirm the deity of Christ, but in practical ways, the way they actually think of Christ is that he's God, but he, he's kind of lesser God than the Father, who's still kind of full-on God. And that's the way it oftentimes is, is, is worked out. And so 
I think that they sometimes will misunderstand uh, what Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2, for instance, the emptying of himself. How about this for a question? What did Jesus give up in the incarnation? What did he empty himself of? Amy, you've not said much yet. This is a tough one. one. Because he did not give up anything in his divinity. Right. Right. Not a thing. So we have to be able to talk about Jesus as mediator, as Mm -hmm. the God man there. Mm -hmm. And um, I do think so often you hear those arguments that he gave up parts of his divinity or his divine nature to become man. And that did not happen. Gave up some of the divine attributes, that sort of thing, which is is not the case. It's not possible. And, And I heard it explained one time this way, which I thought has always been helpful, is that Jesus's emptying came not from, as, as Paul references, not from losing anything, but actually by adding something, namely mm. a human nature. Mm. And this is where I think a lot of confusion comes in. So people will look at a passage that is referencing Christ uh, via his human nature, mm-hmm. and they'll read that over the entire person of Christ. And there are some passages that deal with Jesus or from which Jesus is speaking relative to his human nature. Right. Um, or, or, or some passages that deal with Jesus relative to his divine nature. And I know that that can be confusing, but the fact is there is nothing else like the dual natures of Christ. There's, mm-hmm. there's not a no. good metaphor for it. There's not a good no. illustration for it. It is unique. It is singular. That's why I even like to avoid uh, language where I'll hear people say, you know, I do real incarnational ministry. I don't like that <laughs> because, because the incarnation is so unique and so mm-hmm. unrepeatable and so singular yeah. in that way. Yeah. Well, and that's um, you know, what he gave up. I mean, that still like doesn't take any of the power away from that verse that he didn't give any of his divine self up. Took, it makes it more that, amazing. Right. Like here on the in, nature of a servant. Like yes. if you put Hebrews one, three next to that mm-hmm. Philippians verse, you're just like, Whoa, you right. know, <laughs> right. Here is God yes. in front of us, and he is a humble servant. Right. Who became a servant without yeah. sacrificing any of his deity or any of his rights at all. Now, certainly the son chose not to avail himself of certain of his divine rights, but he lost none of his divine rights mm-hmm. or any of the divine attributes. He didn't become less powerful. He didn't become less of anything, but he took upon himself. Uh, the role of a servant. He humbled himself that way, which is extraordinary uh, mm-hmm. to think about. And the flesh becomes the means of revelation as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just, I've just been working through with the students at Grove, Athanasius is on the incarnation. And one of the things that Athanasius does very well is, is point to how the, the human flesh is sort of instrumental to revelation. That when Jesus touches the dead girl, when he touches Jairus' daughter and raises her from the dead, it's the human nature that touches mm-hmm, the girl, mm-hmm. but it's the God, mm-hmm. it's the divine nature that raises her from the dead. Mm-hmm. And there's this wonderful, uh, again, I, I think sometimes we're, we're misled a little bit by modern psychological notions of personhood, and that when we hear uh, uh, that Jesus is, is one person, we, we kind of psychologize that. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, no, it's not, it's not that uh, when the church is coming up with this idea of, of one person, two natures, that they're coming up with the idea of one psychological being. It's more complicated. It's more mm-hmm. complicated than that. The humanity has become a kind of instrument mm-hmm. by which uh, God is able to reveal himself and act his, right. act his wonders. Right. I would, going back though, you, you, you talk about uh, the language of incarnational. I would sort of agree with you most of the mm-hmm. way on that, Todd, except of course the church is called the body of Christ. Right. The, the Bible itself does sanction 
uh, a very close analogy between mm-hmm. the church and Christ. There's a sense in which the church's ministry is incarnational, for sort of want of a better term. It's the ministry of the body of Christ yeah, yeah. here and now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that, talking about Christ's flesh again, and what is the church's true eschatology of what we are to become? Because when we talk about whether or not Christ still is in the flesh, do we expect to be disembodied souls in the resurrection? Right. right. I mean, you know, it points to what we are becoming. His, mm-hmm. his resurrection, he's the first fruit. Yes. You know, we're being transformed in his likeness. So, I mean, that is our great hope. Right. A, a fully embodied um, life in the age to come. Thomas Aquinas is good on that, as he says, you know, that when you die, your soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it isn't quite you. It's your soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. You are a unity of body and soul. Right, yeah. So you're not actually fully you and fully restored until the, the resurrection at the end of time. Yeah, un- un- until the rest of everything else is fully Mm-hmm. restored and recreated yeah well yeah. and so the incarnation too is the doctrine that we can really reflect on christ's great love for his church mm-hmm. i mean it, it's just truly amazing to think yeah. about the whole christ christ and his church and all that is entailed in the incarnation um both in eternity in the covenant of redemption mm-hmm. <laughs> through what we have to look forward to eternal communion with him in resurrected bodies and one another. It's yeah. truly amazing. Yeah, the lengths that God goes to to purchase his people, the lengths mm-hmm. that he goes to yeah. to ultimately crush the serpent and right. uh, and fulfill his promise. It's, and there's a lot of, there's an awful lot at stake in I've been trying to press this on the students at Grove again that if you have an inadequate view of the incarnation you ultimately end up with a Christ who cannot save, or you end up with an understanding mm-hmm. of salvation that isn't really the proper one. And again, Athanasius is very good on this. You know, what's the real problem for human beings? We've sinned, we're going to die. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Death has to be overcome. If you don't have a full-blooded incarnation, you end up with Christ as some kind of great moral example, right. and it degenerates into some sort of moralism at that right. point. Now, mm-hmm. clearly, there are imperatives in the New Testament. There are moral imperatives that Paul of when he writes his letters, but they're all grounded in that great indicative of the incarnate life, work, death, resurrection, descent, and ascension Mm -hmm. of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell a lot about somebody from their Christology, in other words. Uh, A low Christology really probably indicates a pretty low view of sin and a rather works-based form of, of salvation. And that's the way it always goes. Within Protestant liberalism, you had this very low Christology because you had a very low view of sin and you had a God without wrath. And, and that's, you know, part, part of the, um, uh, the, the blessing of the incarnation and the necessity of the incarnation necessity in terms of if sinners are going to be saved, there's one way they're going to be saved, which is there has to be a wrath bearer. Yeah. And, well, and that's, that's an important element too, because, and it goes to that question when people ask when Christ died on the cross, did he die as God too right, on the cross? Right. Besides that question, which we've kind of alluded to the answer of that being obviously no, but um, Mm -hmm. is it just the wrath of the Father? Mm -hmm. Because when we're talking about the divine will, it's Christ's Mm -hmm. wrath too. Mm -hmm. Wrath of God. uh, Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus' uh, uh, meditation on, you know, as soon as I, I, I think of the three, I'm carried back to the one, and no, yeah. I think of the one that I'm carried back to the three. There's uh, an important 
place for that um, uh, for that struggle as we as we as we think to, to not so neatly divide up um, uh, the Trinity as is often done. Uh, just in terms of 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 its operations, you know, the operations of the persons and the will, the one unified will of the Godhead, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a suspicion that a lot of Christians instinctively think of, you know, God the Father's angry with us. Yes. God the Son is kind of pleading with him not right. to be so angry, right. and right. a kind of transaction takes place. Mm-hmm. Where, of course, you know, Todd, you were pointing to what our, you know, our friends Mike Allen and Scott Swain would point us to as it's you know, the, the doctrine of inseparable operations. Mm-hmm. Right. You cannot take an act of God and say, well, that's actually just the act of, of the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, you connect it with the notion of appropriations, that mm-hmm. each act of the Godhead sort of applies differently to the different mm-hmm. persons. Yep. But it's one God acting with one will. One will. And I think the, the practical, uh, again, I press this on, I press this in the pulpit and I press it in the classroom. It kind of guarantees the son's intercession then because mm. the son is only asking of the father what the father himself wants to give the son. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. It's just one will here. Right. It's right. Not, you're not pitting the father's will against the son's will. Mm-hmm. It's one will of God, which means that as our prayers are carried to the Lord by Christ, they're potent and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that's another confusing part for people too, is the one divine will between the three persons of the Trinity, yeah. but that Jesus in his in incarnation pardon. has two yeah. wills. Yeah. Well, and, th- and that goes to my point here on that we tend to psychologize mm-hmm. right. the person. So if we're presented with this one hypostasis in the flesh that has two wills, with our modern psychological notion of personality, that sounds like two people. Mm-hmm. That sounds as if it could be Nestorianism, you know. Mm-hmm. But people know that when they talk about hypostasis and usir in the ancient church, they're not talking about centers of psychological consciousness. Right. Uh, they're talking and, about something different. Yeah, and that's why, you know, the, the, the early church fathers, so many of them were willing to use the word person and apply it to the persons of the Trinity, but they also cautioned yeah. That in using that mm-hmm. word, we need to be very careful not to read too much of what 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 we think of an experience as persons back into yeah. uh, the the persons of, yeah. of well, the Trinity. Yeah, I wanted to read something helpful here. It's, we're talking about that it made me think about the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, chapter mm-hmm. eight, number seven. Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to mm. the person dom- yeah. denominated mm-hmm. by the other nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the basic point there is mediation is an act of, of a person. You know, it's a personal, right. intentional mm-hmm. action. It's not the act of a, of a nature right. in isolation. Mm-hmm. So exactly. one, one of the, I think one of the great insights of the Reformation was Christ is mediator according to both natures. Mm-hmm. For metaphysical reasons, Catholic theologians had a problem with that. But I, but I think it's absolute, Calvin's absolutely correct when he makes that, that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in touching on the incarnation, I, I'm always sort of conscious that what you don't say is as significant in some ways as what you do say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're treading on holy ground. There's a reason why the Chalcedonian formula is cast in negative terms. Right. Mm. Chalcedon is not attempting to, to close down discussion. What Chalcedon does is says, you know, there's some things, there's some boundaries you can't go beyond without being heretical. 
Mm-hmm. And I think all theologians, all Christians feel that tension when we're wrestling with this greatest of mysteries. Uh, and we're trying to develop a, a grammar of speaking about this mystery that doesn't cross any of the boundaries. So mm-hmm. I would uh, urge anybody listening today to, uh, to think long and hard on these things. Go online, uh, do a Google search for Council of Chalcedon. Do a, a Google search for the Council of Ephesus. Uh, look up the ecumenical councils, the ecumenical creeds. Spend some time reading those. Uh, look at the, the Westminster catechisms and mm-hmm. confession, uh, as Amy's already quoted from, or the new Anglican uh, catechism, uh, to be a Christian that's just come out from Crossway. Uh, that might well be a useful uh, resource as well. So go and look at some of the great catechetical literature of the church and reflect upon why the church has spoken so forthrightly and yet also so cautiously about this central Christian uh, mystery. Please also visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. Remember, we are a uh, listener-supported podcast. If you've enjoyed uh, this program and others and, and you're able to make a donation, please feel free to do so. Otherwise, we look forward to being with you next Wednesday. When I die and the name of the rest, gonna go to the place that's the best. When I lay me down to die, going up to the Syrian sky. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. The engagement party is two weeks on Friday. I'm not driving. Awesome. It's Philly. I don't want my car stolen, so I'm going to see Carl dancing. I'm learning to dance for my son's wedding, by the way. Oh, man. I'm I'm going to be turning up at the ballroom dancing classes at Grove, and I'm going to be be the reformed Fred Astaire. Me and my dad did ballroom (laughs) dancing for our father-daughter dance. That was fun.